The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now in Fast, blown away, then back to Earth. Netflix adding 7 million new subscribers in Q4, but co-CEO Reed Hastings is stepping down and earnings per share posting a big miss. The key takeaways from the stream are coming up. Plus, as the U.S. grapples with the debt ceiling and fears of a default this summer, we'll explain how the D.C. brinksmanship could create a backdoor easing of one of the Fed's key policy tools. And later, a Facebook face-off, one big-time advertising CEO seeing a mega-meta comeback while an early investor says not so fast. The next 12 months could be rough. Who's got the right read? We'll debate that. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Bono and Ice, and Guy Adami, and Steve Grasso. We start off with Netflix. Shares are higher after hours. The streaming giant adding a way more subscribers than expected, but missing earnings estimates in a big way, plus a shakeup in the C-suite as Reed Hastings is stepping down as co-CEO. Here to take us inside the numbers, CNBC's Julia Borston. Julia. Hey, Melissa, that's right. A big subscriber beat. That is what is driving Netflix shares higher. The company added 7.66 million new paid subscribers. That compares to the 4.5 million that Netflix guided to. Now, revenue was pretty much in line with expectations. And while operating margins topped expectations, Earnings per share did come in substantially lower than estimated. That was in part due to a non-cash unrealized loss related to euro-based debt. Now, in terms of guidance, earnings guidance for the first quarter was a bit light, and they no longer provide subscriber guidance. The company does say, though, that they project modest positive paid net ads in the first quarter. Netflix did not reveal any specific numbers about its ad-supported tier, which recently launched, but they said they are pleased so far, quote, saying, we believe branded television advertising is a substantial long-term incremental revenue and profit opportunity for Netflix. They also say they plan to roll out their crackdown on password sharing more broadly in the first quarter, writing in the letter to shareholders, quote, as borrower households begin to activate their own standalone accounts and extra member accounts are added, we expect to see improved overall revenue, which is our goal with all plan and pricing changes. The company also announcing that they do expect to resume the share buyback program sometime this year. We'll be hearing more from Netflix's new co-CEO, former product chief Greg Peters on the call. But Melissa, he has been talking quite a bit on the call the last couple of quarters. Julia, can we triangulate based on the numbers that we do have about what sorts of the quality of the subscribers they added in the quarter? Well, we are going to be digging into that, I'm sure, when the analysts go through the numbers here. And I could just go and look at the average revenue per user um, as I try to pull this up here. Um, but I think what's key here is that um, is that the, the earnings disappointment was not because of a margin issue. So that is key. And I don't think we have the full impact 
of the crackdown um, on password sharing, even in the markets where they've done it. They haven't rolled it out to all markets. And one thing that's really important is they say that as consumers trade down, if you say, I don't want to be paying the full amount for ad-free Netflix, I want to pay a little bit less and watch ads, that those users will ultimately be incremental. So they're not going to be losing money if people trade down to the lower cost ad-supported services. Um, but looking at the revenue growth here and the fact that their revenue forecast is pretty much in line with expectations, um, they seem bullish about margins, which is something I think analysts will be focused on. But we see the stock is now up about 6.5%. All right, Julia, thanks. Julia Vorston. Guy, your take on the quarter. Well, reacceleration in paid ads is good. I mean, seven and a half, seven point six is much higher than I think the four six the street was looking for. So if that's your only metric, mm -hmm. it's a great quarter. There are other mm -hmm. metrics, unfortunately, and one of them is going to become valuation. So I don't know what happened on the EPS side. I'm not going to get crazy about that, but the guide is not great. And we sat here and we've been saying for a while, probably trends up to 340, and you pull the ripcord if and when it gets there. Well, here we are at 340. I don't think there's all that much left in the tank. And that's not to say go out and short uh, Netflix with two hands, not at all. I think you do a back and fill here. I think this quarter was good, not good enough to basically, in my mind, compensate for the valuations that are now probably in line, might be a little bit rich compared to the broader market. I think you sell it on this bounce. I mean, the subs, that was a stunning number. This is something that they have not done since the beginning of the pandemic in terms of ads. Well, on some level, almost as stunning as, as the sub pullbacks that we saw, you know, a year ago that, that knocked the stock. Uh, we know that would happen to the stock. And, and the things that I heard that I thought were the most interesting were a uh, sustained free cash flow going forward, re resuming return of the buyback. I mean, this is a company that among the streaming peers uh, is, is the only one that's, that's actually profitable. It's the only one that's generating free cash flow. And for Netflix, for a while, that was really the big issue, too. Big debt load, big dynamics, content spend. Um, but at a time when people felt like for streamers, there is no way out. There actually is a way out here. And I do think that they've shown that tonight. Yeah, you're right. They are the only one that's profitable. And unlike Guy, I am going to kind of drill down and go a little bit crazy about the about the earnings here and the net numbers, because ultimately we're, we're chalking this up to a one-off non-cash charge related to FX. But you can't have it both ways. Either when the dollar is strong, you can't say, oh, that's only because of dollar-denominated debt or, or you know, um, revenues reached overseas. And then now that it's a headwind, you, you can't say that it, that it doesn't work in your favor. So for me, it's got to be, you've got to take it the good with the bad in terms of, uh, in terms of the FX there. And then I don't really know what I'm supposed to be focused on. Am I supposed to be focused on subgrowth, which they have removed? No, because they're not going to give it well, anymore. Okay, well, then, <laughs> then, then I don't see what all the hoopla is about then, right? If you look at revenues and you look at earnings, I think they're, you know, they're in line. Again, they are profitable. But if we are supposed to be taking our eye off of the subscriber growth ball and moving it to the revenue and profitability ball, I think that ball is a lot smaller than that subgrowth number. Yeah, I mean, it, it's great that they Very had ironic. this, right? That they had this great <laughs> number. But too bad, folks, you won't hear that number again from this day forward, Steve Grasso, in terms of guidance. <laughs> Yeah, so, so the problem is that's what's going to add to the level of volatility that you're going to get on, on days where they report. And when you look at the stock after they reported, the volatility we saw, that's what you're going to see going forward if they don't give us any guidance. Because Tubanowin's, uh, Tubanowin's take on this, people, investors, institutions don't care about anything. As Guy said, he didn't want to drill down because investors don't care right now. Investors care about one thing, sub-growth. Can they continue to invest and to grow subscribers? That's it right now. Now, the trade, if you look at it, if you see the gap back from April on earnings, 
the stock gap down dramatically. So in order to close that gap, it has to trade at 351 and change. It tried to close that gap post earnings, Melissa. So it leads me to believe there's a little more in the tank to climb that that level back to the 350 area. So but the on. fact that Reed's gone, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, he's not really gone. He's the executive chairman. So he's still there. I think that people have to digest the fact that he is still there. And you'll see this market ratchet back up to that 340, 350 area. Still a little left in the tank. Yeah. It's interesting. We were talking in the green room where we get our makeup done. Yes. Before the show. And you posited the and we've talked. I didn't posit anything. I just said I said to myself, where where could Reed Hastings go? What media company is looking for a CEO soon in the next few years? Why did you have to highlight that we get makeup every night? I mean, I don't know. Why do you think we look so good? You think you look naturally like that when you walk through the door (laughs) to the Nasdaq? Yeah. In a perfect world, Uh by the way. Don't you think that a succession plan for Disney over the course of the next couple of years, Reed Hastings is a perfect person to fill that role, number one. And we posited on the show, I know I can say that because we did it for years, when Netflix was a mere uh, percentage of what it is now. Disney should have bought it, should have bought Netflix. So if you can't buy Netflix, the next best thing you can do is bring in a Reed Hastings, who's probably the best suited person on the planet to take Disney to the next level. All right. Um, for more on all of this, let's bring in Rich Greenfield of Lightshed Partners, who's been um, lurking in the background, listening to our conversation, <laughs> shaking his head and disagreeing with most oh, no. of it. Rich, why, why is Uh-oh. that? What, what do you take uh, issue with? Well, I could not disagree more with the commentary that subscriber growth is going to be the driving factor here. You know, the reality is when you move to advertising, there's a huge opportunity to bring on new revenue streams and to ramp advertising. And remember, they're moving towards telling people, hey, if you've been sharing your account with your daughter who lives someplace in another state or with a friend who lives across the country, you're going to either have to start paying more for that person or they're going to have to start getting their own account. And it's going to really put a lot more focus of this company investor wise actually on revenue growth. And I think like if there was anything you could point to in this print, it was the guidance of only 8% revenue growth organically in Q1. I think that's a very conservative number. They just, you know, they just exceeded expectations a little bit on revenue. But I do think that that 8% is going to prove low. And you're going to see that 8% move into the upper teens, if not 20%, as the year progresses. And so I think the real number to focus on is, can they get back to high teens revenue growth? That's what investors are going to care about, less so on subscribers specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think that just to clarify the points that we were trying to make on the desk, maybe we didn't make them very clearly, and that's entirely possible, mm. <laughs> um, is that it seems like investors in the after-hour session at least are very excited about the magnitude of the subscriber additions. And we were just saying that it's too bad that this is happening at a time when Netflix is trying to tell investors that that is not the, the metric to focus on, and it is the traditional metrics of profits and revenues, et cetera, to focus on and not subgrowth at a time when subscriber growth, no, the cover was knocked off the ball this quarter, Rich. That was, do you, do you disagree with that? Rich is frozen. Mm. Well, he, 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 <laughs> I guess he's speechless. Something. He's speechless at this whole thing. Um, but, but getting back to a double digit percentage revenue growth, to, so what would Netflix, what is the expectation? That Netflix is a value stock? 
or Netflix is a growth stock? Well, it, it's it's probably neither right now. It, and at no some point, it looked like it was a broken stock. And, and But if, if I think about Netflix, uh, let's acknowledge they are the largest player. Let's acknowledge that streaming will consolidate, and they are going to be a consolidator. Um, let's acknowledge that they are profitable. So, yeah, I think you start to look at it from a value perspective. And I know that's relative to a peer group. But I, I will go back to the fact that they don't want you to focus on subgrowth because, in fact, this is becoming a more sophisticated company. It makes a lot of sense. In other words, it's kind of like we talk about software companies. What multiple of sales are they? Um, if I'm a streaming company, it's really just, you know, it's been only about subs. And to, to some extent, Disney was over-rewarded in terms of their rapid subgrowth. And depending on how you're counting Hulu and, and all the other parts of, of their empire, I think they almost got too much credit. Rich is back, uh-huh. so I'm told. Yeah. All right. Let's bring you back in. Look, the thing I would think about is the $3 billion of free cash flow. There were so many investors and media executives who said Netflix is never going to make money. They never. This is a business that will never work. Streaming is a bad business. We've heard that so many times. And you've seen a lot of media companies who go now, they're rushing to get to profitability and they don't know how to do it. So they're starting to cut costs, cut marketing, cut content spend. Here you have Netflix. They're spending $17 billion a year on content. And they're going to generate $3 billion a year of free cash flow, at least up 100% year over year and, you know, off to the races over the course of the next few years. And so I think the real thing to think about as everyone is looking at what to do with Netflix from here is what does this mean for the rest of the sector? Do you think the Peacocks, the Paramount Pluses, the HBO Maxes, will they be able to sustain the level of investment or does it give Netflix more of an advantage in 23 and 24? Where did that free cash flow come from? Because the street was looking for, I think, negative $160 million. It came in at three, to your point, 332. I mean, that's pretty incredible against a quarter that the metrics, I mean, I'm not the brightest bulb in the fixture, as people watch the show have come to learn, but the math doesn't sort of make sense to me. Well, remember, as you start to regrow revenue, so as revenue starts to grow double digits or more, and you're starting to, again, at $17 billion of content, you can't keep spending. I mean, they, they, they create so much content that you don't need as much more incrementally, especially if others are scaling back. And I think the thing that they're not, that investors have not focused enough on is that the legacy media industry is going to start scaling back how aggressive they are in streaming as they rush to profitability. You've heard it from Bob Iger. You've heard it from David Zaslav, like executive after executive. That's going to actually mean less spending, marketing spend from Netflix on a relative basis. The end result, though, is tremendous free cash flow over the next few years. And that's something that no one was expecting for Netflix. So, um, Rich, does that underscore, does that show that there is a way to profitability for the for the legacy media companies that have entered streaming more recently, this Netflix quarter, or does this tell them that Netflix is so much in the lead that that, that it's just sort of a, a competition that they cannot win. Can you hear me? Oh. <laughs> OK, we're obviously having many gremlin issues with Rich. Um, well, thank Rich at this point. Um, thank you, Rich Greenfield of Lightshed Partners. What do you think, Bonwin? Does this make Disney look better? Does this make Disney look worse? I think it makes them all look worse. I mean, when you really drill down into profitability um, and then you look at user engagement and how long the actual users are engaged with the uh, 
with the interface, right? And you look at Netflix and it's multiples of what others are, which speaks to its ability to kind of drive ad-related uh, revenue. So I'm with Tim. You will see consolidation. With that said, I will kind of, I'm going to circle back here and say, I still think that the focus should not be on subscriber growth. It should be on churn and profitability. And with those things abated, I think that speaks to where the others have to make up ground. Steve? Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. And I, and I agree with what you had said, Melissa, to Rich. I, I agree that it should be about fundamentals. It's not. It's about subgrowth. That's why we see the stock up post earnings. So I think they're going to get a pass. Tim brought up a, you know, a good point. This was a company that people thought was going to be written off. It's not after this print. So it's getting a second look, a third look, a fourth look. I think there's probably a little bit of a balance. I own the stock below 300. I sold it yesterday. I'm not going to be buying it back right now. I want it to have a clear, defined direction. All right, we'll keep track of Netflix in the after hour, still holding on to that 6.5% gain at this point. We've got a news alert, meantime, in the crypto space. Kate Rooney's got all the details on the latest company to catch the SEC's eye. Kate. Hey, Melissa. So this time, the SEC is taking on crypto trading platform Nexo. It's the agency's latest crypto enforcement action. The SEC charged the company with failing to register its crypto lending product. It was an interest-bearing consumer product to let people tender their crypto in return for yield. Nexo agreed to pay $45 million in penalties to both the SEC and state regulators without admitting or denying the SEC's findings. It also uh, agreed to a cease and desist order. SEC Chairman Gary Gensler saying in a statement that compliance with our time-tested public policies isn't a choice, as he put it, where crypto companies do not comply. We will continue to follow the facts and the law to hold them accountable. Last week, the SEC charged two other crypto companies, Genesis and Gemini, with violating securities laws for a similar interest-bearing product. The agency certainly ramping up some of the enforcement actions lately, but in the wake of the FTX collapse, the SEC has also come under pressure for not imposing some of these safeguards earlier. Back to you. It's great. They're really cracking down now, Kate. <laughs> Kate Rooney. <laughs> all the details. Thanks, y'all. It's, it's just yeah. stunning, right? I mean, so now they've got a cookie cutter where they are just going to enforce against these all these companies that have offered to for people to lend out their crypto and earn some yield. That reminds me of the untouchables a little bit, would you say? You know, I like where, what you where, did there. Again, you know, you had the FBI. Go, no, but I mean, I, I think there's a theme to this, by the way, folks. Um, I, I think you have a case where one of the big issues is what are securities and what are not? Um, where do you get uh, traditional regulatory uh, framework involved? And I think we'll, we'll see. But um, it is a little ironic that there's been a lot of money lost, and this is when we're starting to tap people on the wrist. I don't think it's necessarily, and this is the point we made when the FTX thing came out, they're bad operators, obviously sure. some nefarious things going on, but that's not an indictment of Bitcoin. Right. And Bitcoin, obviously, over the last week or so. It's traded like a champ. Yeah. Traded like a champ. Mm-hmm. Just something to point out. I don't think it's coincidental that it comes on the heels of what's going on in Japan, but that's probably for a more wonky show than we exhibit each night at 5 p.m. <laughs> Eastern time here, Monday through Friday. All right, coming up. The point on P&G, what results from the consumer goods companies say about prices, volumes, and the strength of the consumer. More on that straight ahead. Plus, analysts eyeing IBM for some gains. So will a bet on Big Blue lead to some green? The traders are breaking down those calls when Fast Money returns. Back in two. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. 
For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Nordstrom taking a big hit in the after-hour session. The stock is down about 6% right now after the retailer announced weak holiday sales and a lot of holiday markdowns. Overall sales dropped 3.5%. The decline even steeper, over 7.5% at its off-price outlet, Nordstrom Rack. The company said they are seeing great resilience in our higher-income cohorts, but that consumer definitely being more selective with their spending. Guy. Well, this would be the water world in terms of what do you mean by- well, in terms of Kevin Costner movies, which were Disaster. just so disasters. Everything has to relate yep. to a Kevin sure. Costner movie. That's Why did you give it away? They're Why? supposed, to, they're supposed to, to be able to I mean, figure people, it out. You know, people try to figure smart. that out later they in the show. They might be like me and have no idea. They're anyway. smart. They, Most people they will be figuring this out. It's a miserable guide. Now they're going to now margins are going to be a problem. I mean, that sales growth was it was awful in a season where that's when they should be knocking the cover off the ball, which historically they've done. People will say valuation, valuation in Nordstrom. I get it, except that's the wrong reason to be buying the stock. I think it can continue to go lower from here. It's the same song. And like you said, it's a valuation trap. That's not really what should be paid attention to here. It's the propensity to spend and the ability to spend of the consumer along with leverage, right? And we're seeing savings drawdowns. I think that this is pretty much what we've heard across the board. And when you start to see companies like Lulu say, and Nike say inventory is building, it's just a matter of time before it trickles down here as well. Yeah. And when you hear these numbers, you got to think inventory is probably building if they couldn't sell the stuff. And then once you carry that inventory well, to the new year, how much more difficult is it to get rid of it? Yeah, the inventory um, issue, I think, is let's just throw it out the door. And that's just such a big problem for, for margins. And if you think about the, the strength of, of Macy's and Nordstrom's over the last 12 months, it's been that they've been actually able to hold on to the margin. They haven't been overly promotional. Their DTC business was growing. Um, I like Macy's. I like the valuation. Um, I, I like the fact you're going to get a chance to buy it lower here. And I do think that you know, they've proven that they can actually change that business model. All right. Meantime, Procter & Gamble closing at its lows of the day after the company reported declines in revenue and profit for its latest quarter. Higher prices were not enough to offset a drop in volumes for Procter & Gamble. Look at that. Up 10 percent. This is this quarter yeah. alone up 10 percent on goods, Grasso. Yeah, it's not a winning recipe. You you have to keep raising costs to cover your gaps or to make up your margins. Obviously, we're going into a slowdown, whether it's a a deep, uh, soft or hard slowdown. 
Uh, who knows what that recession bottoms out at. But the recipe for Procter does not seem like it's going to come out with anything great. It was a darling right out of the pandemic, and it seems to have lost its luster recently. I would stay away from the stock right now. The commentary surrounding the sort of the issue of elastic price elasticity yeah, is very interesting. Consumers are, are working down the inventory within their own pantries and they're being more careful about using items like paper towels. So people are conserving instead of guy using five paper towels to clean up a spill. Use one if you can. I thought you were going to go somewhere shirt. else with that, by the way. I'm glad you decided not well, to. Well, they specifically said paper towels but that's and for, not another paper towel. That's product. for another show. What it means is they can no longer pass right, their costs exactly. on. And that's what we've been talking about for and a while. Prices will continue to rise. Volume sales will go down at 23 times next year's numbers in this environment. Procter Gamble is too expensive. Yeah, and, and the, the message in the bottle on this is that I think other Staples companies are, are going to be hit the same way. And, and a little trade school on this, people, the, the, the whole concept of price elasticity, this is one of these misnomers because I, I always thought it was the opposite. If something's elastic, there's a little bit of give to it. But in fact, but at some point it snaps. At some points it snaps. So again, the elasticities here are, 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 have worsened. And, and that's, that's the case here. Again, a 17-point spread between less uh, 6% contraction in sales, 10% rise in their top line. They haven't had this kind of a sales drop in years on top of a 10% sales rise. This is a bad number. And again, Staples have been defensive. I don't think you're chasing them here. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Blue chip? Check. Analysts giving the thumbs up on IBM. So can Big Blue add some color to your portfolio? Plus, debt ceiling drama. The threat of default looming. And that could have big implications for the Fed's tightening plans. The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Call of the day on IBM. Shares closing well off the highs of the session. They're still maintaining, uh, managing to eke out a gain. Moffitt Nathanson upgrading the stock to a market performance, saying the company should benefit from strong demand for IT services in 2023. Shares up almost 7% in the last year, well outperforming its IT peers, as well as the broader market. They specifically said the turnaround is here. It's paying off. Tim, do you buy that? Well, uh, it's all relative, and, and I think if you, you know, if you think about what the company's actually promised and what they've delivered on, they, they've actually been pretty successful in matching the two. The Red Hat acquisition at the time seemed very expensive and very late. It was actually a very strong acquisition, but I think that's an area that becomes a lot more commoditized. Uh, one of these uh, upgrades is the expectation of a weakness on free cash flow may be overdone, or it's reflected in the price. Um, I just think for a company outperforming on a really bad tape because, in fact, they had, not, they had underperformed the S&P, by probably 150% over the previous four years is not a reason to go out and buy this. Um, it's not a reason to go out and buy a, a mega cap tech company, which it still kind of qualifies as in a period where I think, if anything, there's a retrenchment. Yeah. Steve, you like IBM? 
I actually do. I'm looking at a chart, and if you if you see the stock has been basically hugging its 50-day moving average, which is at $144 now. Um, obviously, the stock's lower than that. But the the call is not that impressive to me because I believe they have a price target of $140, which is where it's trading right now. I think that IBM has an extreme opportunity to make quantum computing what AWS was for Amazon. So if they could leverage those relationships and those JVs with corporations, I think it can move much higher from here, but definitely has been a legacy play company. This is where you can wonk out because on the 18th, uh, Morgan Stanley downgraded IBM and they cut their price target to 148. As Steve just pointed out, Moffitt Nathan Nathanson mm -hmm. upgraded $140 price target. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, valuation, you can make a case. Tim's right. You hear that? It's like the sirens. Siren. Are well, we Sounds are like in we are in Times Square. Times Square. Yeah. Well, You've never heard a siren before? No, I've heard sirens. It just seemed louder this time than it typically does, Tim. New York City. At any top. rate, they report next week. I would be more inclined to wait because earnings for them are typically disastrous. Yeah, I don't really think this is much of a bullish call. It's a relative value play, as Tim had mentioned, and pretty much you're expecting this to outperform the market in a down tape, which it has a history of doing. But if you look at revenue growth, which we've alluded to, or you look at free cash flow growth, it's been declining sequentially for the better part of the last decade. I mean, you'd have to go back to, I don't know, when they were filming bodyguard to mm, see numbers nice. with where they are right now so uh you know it would I have been have a great a, place to say or went to taco was roaming the, the prairie uh, i mean it would know? have been but we didn't do that yep. so next time but we did <laughs> we did all right we're gonna go to break now coming up the debt ceiling showdown drama unfolding in dc as the u.s hits its borrowing limit so could the default dampen the moves by the Federal Reserve? More on that next. And get ready for a Zucker punch, the battle brewing over Meta's next Ooh. move. Two big names sounding off in the company's future. So who should you believe? The details ahead. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Markets, closing out the day in the red with the Dow dropping more than 250 points. It's third straight day of losses. The drop fully erasing the index's gains for the year. The S&P and Nasdaq also closing out the day lower. The three major indices all on pace to end two weeks winning streaks. Industrial stocks, some of the biggest losers today. Shares of Deere down more than 4%, posting their lowest close in over two months. But there were a couple of bright spots. Energy, communication services and healthcare sectors all managed gains at the end of the day. What do we make of this action? We also heard, by the way, from Lyle Brainerd. This is the, the last Fed official that we'll hear from before the blackout officially starts on Saturday. Guy? Well, we're, they, they're staying the, the course. course. No matter what, no matter what the progress they are making on inflation. And the market the chose not to listen for a while. I think the market is starting to listen now. But forget about Lyle Brainerd. Forget about all the Fed officials. We're seeing layoffs. Microsoft is laying off people. We're seeing layoffs in a number of different sectors. What does that mean? Almost by definition, slowing economy. Slowing economy manifesting itself in lower rates. Not supportive of current valuation. So to me, at least, this makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, it was just a matter of time. I didn't really understand the rally. It seemed to just get be hard up and to the right. And despite what Fed officials had come out and publicly said time and time again. So I think, you know, you really need a bit of a retracement back to a level where we can perhaps rally a bit from. But it wouldn't be on the back of expecting 
looser monetary policy. It would be because of a surprise of earnings to the upside, which is what I think is the underlying issue. With I would say it was 13 days ago that nice. actually on December 28th, by the way, that happens to work out with this Costner reference. It, it was 13 days ago when on the 28th, the market then began a rally that took us up through really the 200 day. This market has been extremely predictable in terms of some of the key technical levels. But I thought yesterday's uh, macro and then price action and the fall through today framed exactly where we are. The market is focused and is not sure how to react between the backward looking Fed um, analysis of, of the market. They're looking at a, at a trailing indicator in the job market and a number of other things that are yesterday's news versus the forward and the leading indicators of the market. And the leading indicators of the market are the leading indicators of the economy. And we got that with industrial production. We've gotten that with uh, certainly some of the retail sales numbers. And, and really, those are the more important numbers for the market. And I think this is where the market is starting to, to break down. And the contemporary and forward-looking guidance and messages that we're getting out of earnings season. I mean, we just spent so much time talking about Procter & Gamble and Nordstrom and, and where the consumer is at right now, Steve Brasso. So we're getting a lot of sort of, uh, you know, cold water thrown on this rally at this point. Yeah, but, but you know, by the same token, we, we had a nice earnings report out of, out of Netflix. So it depends on who's going to carry the market uh, more aggressively but people do, we don't know whether it's going to be a, a, a hard or soft landing until we actually start to hear companies report and get thicker into this. We, we all knew there was going to be an issue with retail sales. We all knew there was going to be an issue with a JWN. It's where do we see the thick of earnings really start to perform or not perform? But when you look at the technicals in the market, 38.65 is, is a support area. But the truth is we don't have real support a down to a 3,800 level. The good news is the 200-day moving average is dropping. That has been bulletproof resistance to the market. That's 39.71, so a lower level to breach to the upside for the bulls. That's like glass half full, isn't it, Grass? I mean, isn't it bad that the 200-day moving average is sloping downward? Because that means that the market's losing momentum. Yeah, it, it, do, it does mean that. But if everyone's keyed in on stuff that they know because they can't key, key in on what they don't know, they look for these big, round, shiny objects. And the shiny object has been the 200-day. The 200-day has been insurmountable for the market to cross over. And now you have a downward sloping one that may, might make it easier. All right. Uh, the U.S. hitting its debt ceiling today while the clash over the limit intensifies on Capitol Hill. There may be an unintended consequence on the Fed's tightening policy. Joe Lavornia is a former chief economist for the National Economic Council. He's now chief economist at SMBC, Nico Securities America. Joe, great to have you with us. So explain this Thank to you. us like we are in fifth grade in terms <laughs> okay. of how this counteracts the, what the Fed is trying to do with its balance sheet. Sure. So just to recap for a second, the, uh, the Fed, there's a statutory debt limit uh, that has to be increased every few years. We've run up against that. The Treasury is now is using accounting gimmicks uh, to basically stay under the ceiling so that at some point both parties reach a deal to extend it. How does that impact the Fed? It impacts the Fed, Melissa, right where I think will be around the summer months because the Treasury will do these measures. We can go into them. They do these measures that get them through this quarter. Second quarter, you have a big April tax payment coming in, revenues increase, net borrowing by the Treasury comes down. And then we got a big debt fight back, you know, coming sometime in July, just like we did back in uh, 2011. At that point, the economy will be in recession, it'll be an obvious recession, in my opinion. 
The Fed already will be pivoting toward lower interest rates. And then the debt ceiling will be an extra layer, an extra worry uh, that will uh, rattle investors, potentially leading the Fed to do QE if there's concerns about a missed uh, interest payment. So it can get really ugly. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's this like small this technical thing where the Treasury has an account an account at the Fed. It's going to use that cash. It's going to wind that down, which effectively raises reserves at the Fed. And that sort of counteracts what the Fed is trying to do, because that, in effect, is injecting liquidity in the system, which the Fed is trying to pull out. Well, yes. Okay. So so here's the thing. Right now, the Treasury balance, the Treasury general account is around 400 billion. They, meaning the Treasury, could probably run that down about uh, to, say, 100 billion, 75 billion. You have to have some money in it because as money goes out, the Treasury literally could bounce checks on the Fed. So that could offset the liquidity portion, Melissa, just for a very short period of time. What the Treasury is basically doing is the non-marketable debt, which are a lot of government trust funds, including things like Social Security, they now are giving those trust funds IOUs. They're not counting it as non-marketable debt. But the liquidity drain, as long as the Fed is doing QT, the liquidity drain will continue and the drop in securities will ultimately massively offset any modest offset in the short term related to the debt ceiling as that government or that Treasury balance dips a bit. Kevin, uh, Kevin, Joe, it appears as though <laughs> I got Kevin Costner. We've been Kevin trying to weed work, Kevin Costner. I work with Kevin. You're thinking of Kevin Costner. No, I was yeah. going to say, Kevin McCarthy, I mean, if you watch those the votes, I mean, it's clear that he made some sort of deal with a small group that seems to have a very large voice. And in your notes, it says things are going to get messy. Not 2011 messy, but messy. They're going to push the envelope on this. And I don't think a 19 and a half, 20 VIX is pricing any of this in whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we had the debt downgrade in 11. I don't know we'll have another debt downgrade because if we did, it'd be forced selling of different accounts that uh, wouldn't be allowed to hold Treasury securities. But yes, 11 was was really tricky. We had that debt downgrade. It was really messy. The economy was soft then, Guy, in in 2011. But I'm thinking we're going to be in recession potentially in, in July. So it'll be worse. Yeah, you would think the VIX would go up significantly, 35, 40, maybe even 50. All right, Joe, we got to leave it there. Um, but thank you for, for joining us, Joe, not Kevin. Yeah. Lavornia. Thank you. <laughs> that is the first time that we have our silly games have steeped into. Well, amazing. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, here. how quickly, I mean, could, could have been Bull Durham or something. I mean, it's, very, it's very close. And, you know, Tim was going to make a joke, by the way. I'm just, I know we got to go to break. When you said speak to us we like we're fifth to graders. Talk about and Tim was going to say something <laughs> like, guy <laughs> wishes he was that advanced. Because I know, I, I know you. Child. Um, well, it's amazing that some people say we are not going to get downgrade. The downgrade won't happen. This I'm sure they said that in 2011, mm-hmm. too. I'm not trying to say that that's where we're headed, but, you know, I feel like nobody thought that there, was going to happen then. There, so why not now also? We brought this up last night. And if you've been in markets and you've taken certain things as gospel, um, you remember where you were when the U.S. was downgraded. And, and, and it was an extraordinary moment for markets, especially some of the domino effects that went to the European uh, sovereign debt markets. I'll just point out that rest of the world, as we talk about all, all of the shenanigans going on over here, looks pretty interesting and continues to really outperform. And it's clearly emerging markets. So um, from the China bottom, EEM or emerging markets or the ETF that tracks the MSCI EM has outperformed the S&P by 20 percent. So we're talking about from the, the, the third week in October, again, a weaker dollar, rates that have peaked here, uh, inflation that at least is seen probably some of its worst days is a great recipe for this outperformance. And I think you're buying weakness there. 
Uh, I'm getting my popcorn ready. I think this will be interesting. One, where are the cuts going to come from? Is it going to be health care? Is it going to be defense spending, which is an absolute no-no? Uh, is it going to be Social Security? And then secondly, the idea that, that letting us go into a default or get to the point of having a, uh, a downgrade is some type of bargaining chip to me is preposterous, particularly if you're trying to fight inflation. I think those things will have long-standing um, negative effects in terms of uh, you know servicing debt uh, for the U.S. government going forward. So I, I think that's kind of off the table. I do expect there to be some continued posturing as this gets a, a bit contentious going into June. Coming up, talk about a social distortion. Two big names weighing in on the future of Meta. The bull and the bear case on that stock next. Plus, SLB gearing up to deliver results tomorrow. That's uh, formerly known as Schlumberger. Mm. Should you expect mm-hmm. some high energy or an oil slick? The action in that Ooh. name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. A Facebook face-off in the mountains of Switzerland today. Ad mogul Martin Sorrell and one of Facebook's earliest investors, Jim Breyer, taking very different stances on where shares of Meta are going this year. Take a listen. I think you'll see Meta come back extremely strongly this year on the back of Reels and Business Messenger. So to deal with the competition from TikTok and, and, and other short-form video competitors. My view is over the next 24 months, there will be a big rebound, but they're going to be under a lot of pressure for the next 12 months. And they're not cutting costs fast enough, in my humble opinion. So who is right, Steve? Well, the stock has bounced pretty aggressively and has closed that gap from uh, from earnings where it fell off a cliff. The, the question is what we've all said on the desk. What is the metaverse? Does Zuckerberg know what the metaverse is? What's the spend going to be on on metaverse? That's the growth engine. But what they have to do is talk more about the core. We've had the headwinds from Apple privacy, the headwinds from TikTok. I think the stock has just shook off a lot of that. It was public enemy number one. I think D.C. has a bunch of other fish to fry right now. I think it could probably move higher here but definitely needs a rest. I'm actually still long the name. I intend on staying long. I mean, I think a lot of the downside has been de-risk at this point. And the bull argument is really around valuation, which you can't really argue against. And it's really the tale of two cities. So I look at this balance sheet. I look at the financials, right? And you look at debt. It's like one times free cash flow. You look at sequential revenue growth uh, year over year, quarter over quarter. And really, you, you juxtapose that with what seems to be frivolous and irresponsible spending uh, in the short term. And so really, as long as they can get that capital discipline reined in and actually let us know how they plan on deploying that capital and what are the cases the relevant KPIs to determine whether or not it is active, uh, active, um, actually effective spin, I think that is when the stock really starts to turn around. But the debate is really about whether it's a 12-month period or a 24 to 36-month period. But I think a lot of the, a lot of the downside has been de-risk at this when point. When you refer to frivolous spending, what are you referring to? I'm talking about billions. What is it? Ten on billion dollars on the metaverse? But no. uh, some people will say that, that is With forty that billion. Is, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, the, the degree, the, the the magnitude of the spend is frivolous, or the spending on me, or metaverse is frivolous. The mag, like the rate of the spin. Okay. When you compare that to where free cash flow is, to well, me, is a bit frivolous. So uh, I think it was October 27th. The stock traded 220 million shares. It traded 23 million. By the way, just to give you some perspective on that today. Um, and and so 
the dynamic when Zuckerberg came out, I, it was almost a mea culpa. He's not going to do that. And a lot of people said, oh, if he does that, if he reverses field in the metaverse, the stock's going to sell off even more. No, the stock's going to rally. And what Facebook has been doing quietly um, and not going out there and saying is what every other corporate is doing and trying to get rewarded for, which is to focus on the bottom line, not the top line. So I think it goes higher. I, I think this is an environment also where they have more um, ammunition and noise around what they need to do. Everyone else is cutting costs. This is what they need to do. The stock will be rewarded. Their core business, uh, not so sexy, not growing. Um, 2.2 billion people in terms of that platform, it goes higher. They've pivoted to a business that they can't explain and nobody understands, which is problematic. To Bonwin's point, spending money hand over fist doing it. That's not good. Stocks rallied 60% since the level Tim talked about, which is great. Problem is, this level is where we bottomed out from, if you go back and look, in March of 2020. So in the earnings, I believe, on the first, on a backdrop where ad spend continues to go down, I think you're actually looking for a place to take profits rather than to add to longs. Coming up, oil options, SLB on deck to deliver results tomorrow. So we're checking in on the options pits to see how traders are playing the name, the action, when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Oil prices resuming their march higher today. The commodity closing out its ninth positive day in the last 10 sessions. SLB following suit, the company formerly known as Schlumberger, up more than 7% this year. It is on deck to report earnings before the bell tomorrow. And options traders are betting it could be due for a pullback. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yep, more than two times the average daily options volume today. Right now, the options market implying a move of about 4.3% when they report tomorrow. The most active single contract, the January 55 puts, we saw just under 6,000 of those trading for 46 cents a contract. Buyers of those puts risking less than 1% of the stock price on a bearish bet. Not surprising given the big move we've seen up nearly 70% since the mid-September lows. SLB was a nobody's acronym, I think. No, I well, although energy yeah, was yeah. energy and and um, I, I, one of the hardest things to do in, in markets is actually let your winners run. I've been long Slumberger for a couple of years and, and it's getting back to 2015, 16 profitability levels. It's not even there yet. And, and if you look at next year, they're going to return 50 percent of free cash flow. Uh, the dividend yields coming back. But the spending discipline is there. But but if you look at what's going on in the oil space, offshore drilling is just getting going. And that's part of this, that, the power. Mike, thanks. See you tomorrow. Tomorrow, of course, is the full show, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. There are just five days left to vote for your favorite 2023 trader acronym. Do you feel zen with Bonowin's picks? Do you think Grasso's acronym is just right? We want to know. All the picks are on our homepage. You can pick your three favorites. Head on over to cbc.com slash fastmoney or scan the QR code right on your screen to go vote. Polls close at the end of our show, Tuesday, January 24th. Ooh. You can vote as many times as you want, by oh, the no. way. <laughs> okay, moms. Which I have done. <laughs> For Karen. Uh, let's get another look at shares of Netflix higher after its latest earnings report. The company beating estimates for subs, um, but handily uh, missing, handily, but missing on revenues. Co-founder Reed Hastings also stepping down as co-CEO. The company's conference call starts in 45 seconds, top of the hour. It is holding on its gains in the after hour so far, up six and three quarters percent. Final trade time, Grasso. The TMI just trade, Tesla. Tim. Slumberger, again, oil field services are only hitting a sweet spot in terms of their core business. Bonowin. Whether it's debt or whether it's VIX being too low, GLD, I want some safety. Okay. A few blocks down the road, Mel. Is tonight's Ranger Bruin game, in your opinion, a litmus test game? 
Yes, absolutely. Nice answer. I agree with you on that one. Uh, Bristol Myers, BMY, in the earnings early February. All right, thanks for watching Fast. See you tomorrow morning on Squawk Box with The Judge. Bad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.